I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to, well, should be up there, Psalm 139, page 444. If you're using a pew Bible, we're talking about our God, our God cares. You may know that some people worship gods who don't care very much or that are impersonal. We went through the book of Exodus, uh, including the Ten Commandments, and wrapped it up last week with the story of the golden calf, and we called it No Turning Back. Uh, The people of Israel were taught lessons by God, uh, lessons about who he was, how much more powerful he was than the Egyptian gods, that's what the ten plagues were about, and his promises that if they would stay faithful to him, and follow his patterns and his ways. Not just unique patterns and ways for Jewish or Hebrew people, but God was specific about the principles behind the Ten Commandments and all the laws were related to what could be called natural law. This is the way God created human beings to live. And they were to model this for the rest of the world, but for their own success, they were to live according to God's patterns the way God created humans to work. Now, when we went through the Ten Commandments, we talked about each of these in terms of an underlying principle about respect for parents, obeying parents, and respect for each other's property, respect for marriage and the nuclear family, and all of the things that go in the Ten Commandments. We talked about that. But the underlying principle was The God who created the world and everyone in it is the one who gave these principles. And that's why they work. And that's why they apply to everybody. So today we're going to jump to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is um, one of the songs that the Israelites sang. You may know that the Psalms are poetry. And they were sung by the people of Israel. They were their version of hymns. And this one drew attention to the fact that wherever they went, God was going to watch over them and be their provider. We call that principle providence. And I'm going to read. You have an insert in your bulletin, the white page. And on the back side of that, it says the providence of God. By way of introduction, I simply want to read to you these two paragraphs that deal with this subject as a principle, and then we'll talk about the passage, the teaching that the Israelites were given by inspiration through David to write a hymn that would constantly draw them back to a reminder of who God was and that he was with them. One of the things we do, and all churches like ours, they do is once a month or weekly, uh, in other, some churches they do at different schedule, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're not doing that today, but we gather weekly to draw our attention back to God, who is our provider, our caregiver, and our source of strength, and we worship him. The providence of God. Providence is a Christian concept referring to God's continuing involvement in the world after he created it, but he's the superintendent rather than the dictator. Deists and humanists suggest that even if God started the creation, he didn't, doesn't interfere thereafter. Atheists suggest there is no involvement of God in events because there is no God to be involved. 
Fatalists, such as extreme Muslims and some extreme Christians, suggest that God dictates all decisions and events anyway, so he's not superintending, but actually just calling all the shots. Pantheists, such as Buddhists and Hindus, believe that God is not involved with creation, but that the creation itself, including us, is God. The biblical view, however, is that God created the world and the life in it, including us and then remains involved for its preservation and ultimate good. And one of the ways he remains involved is through us when we serve him in the world. Within the framework of his overall care and supervision, there are choices, consequences, free will, and changes to be made. The mystery of how God can function fully as God, as God and we can be fully human with free will, at the same time as a product of our own limitations and will someday be understood. In the meantime, we can relax in God's care as we go about our responsibilities, making choices along the way. Life within boundaries makes us more useful, not slaves. The problem, you may be familiar with the problem of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. There are many discussions about this over the centuries for Christians. It's uh, sometimes referred to as Calvinism versus Arminianism. Two words that you do not need to learn, and if you did learn them, you may forget them now. But it really means, is God in charge or are we in charge? How can God be sovereign and the ruler of the universe and the caregiver, providential care, and we still have free will to make decisions? You're not going to solve that problem intellectually. Immanuel Kant called that antinomy. And recently, I just read a book by one of the most famous atheists, they're called the Four Horsemen of the New Atheists, uh, a guy named Sam Harris actually wrote a book called Free Will. And he's a total atheist, but he says there is no such thing as free will. Uh, science has proven that all acts are the result, are simply a reaction to something else. And that we think we're making decisions and making choices, but in fact they're just happening to us. Now as Christians... We see God as the superintendent of the world, the universe, and all this. But he, within that framework, gives us choices to make. And the mystery is how this can take place and be real. But you can't solve the mystery just by forgetting about God. It gets even worse without God in the picture. It's a fatalism without God in the picture, but it's not going to be resolved. So we have information given to us by God himself of how this works. He's still in charge. He's personal. He is not just personal, but he is universal at the same time. That's how great our God is. Psalm 139, I'm going to read this, make a few comments as we go, and then draw your attention to six points from here that I think are worth our discussion. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Think of this as a hymn that they would sing together, the Israelites. And they're wandering in the wilderness. Uh, they didn't have this hymn yet. But when they were a nation and they were being attacked and King David uh, was their king, all of their history, this was one of the things that God wanted them to remember. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. But a word on my tongue, uh, uh, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. Uh, that's a little scary, isn't it? 
that uh, the things that you say, even when you think nobody is listening, or at least none of the church people are listening, you know, clean up your language when the preacher walks by sort of thing, God hears it anyway. That's, uh, that's could be comforting, but it could be scary as well. Number five, verse five, you hem me in behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Let me make a comment about the darkness and the light analogy that is using here. You may know that light is not the absence of darkness, but darkness is the absence of light. Light is actually a wave, and then recently been proven that it also has mass. In other words, it's a thing. The absence of that thing, light, is darkness. So the, where there is no light, there is darkness. You can't infuse a room with darkness, but you can infuse a dark room with light because it's a positive force. Darkness is the vacuum, what isn't there. And here he's suggesting that as dark as it gets, even if I try to hide, or even if my life seems total darkness in a vacuum, it isn't because you're there. The difference is, do I recognize the light that you infuse the room with God? Verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to, to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Wow, that's kind of strong, don't you think? I've mentioned this before, but recently um, in Leadership Journal, there was an article called uh, Preach the Bloody Bible. And it's not a figure of speech. The author was suggesting that we deal honestly with the things that are in the Bible that aren't that comfortable. And his point was, this is uh, the author, is a guy that actually lives in Portland and does inner city ministry. But his point was that we middle class suburban Christians have gotten so used to safety and the comfort zone that 
we're shocked by things we see in the Bible that seem harsh and uncomfortable. And he made a point, and I agree with this point. Most people in history, even most people in the world, have not had the privilege to live in the kind of conditions we live in. So references to strong feelings and even strong actions and even bloody actions, most people in history and most people in the world would be likely to respond with, yeah, give it to them. This is God and this is justice. It's not advocated as our attitude and our behavior, but the Psalms represent the feelings of the psalmist. It's poetry. Quite a few of the psalms have references to things like this. Hate, anger, frustration, even mad at God. Because he's expressing some real feelings. And I would suggest leave apart, leave to the side the idea of hating people. If there's nothing in this world that you hate, nothing, you probably don't know God. Because God really hates a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world today. And he hates the atmosphere that's created and the damage that's done to innocent people. The splashes of garbage filth on his beautiful artwork. He hates that. And it makes him angry. And he does something about it. If there's nothing in your life that makes you angry or even causes you to hate something then maybe you ought to examine yourself to see whether you have anything of the mind and heart of God. Because the essence of hate or anger... Now, I'm not talking about hate the way the term is used in our society today. Pretty much, if you disagree with somebody, you're a hater. And it's taken the meaning out of the term. I disagree with the fact that you called me a hater, so you're a hater. No, you're a hater. No, you're a hater. Oh, you're all haters because you don't like this, you don't like that, you don't like me, you don't like the way I do things. You must be a hater. That is making the concept meaningless today, which I suggest is a precursor to something else coming down the road. But this is an interesting response. Verse 23. Search me, O God and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So he turns, the psalmist turns his attention from the people out there who have rejected this beautiful, providential, caregiving, loving God, and then he turns it to himself and says, but wait a minute, you examine my heart. It's fairly easy to look out, watch your television, and watch the news and look around you and see who's out there disobeying God's commands and doing all bad stuff. But it's more powerful and more effective when we ask God to search our own hearts. The very things that we may be angry about in society end up being some of the things, the attitudes that we ourselves hold We just like to say, well, that's different because that's me. So that's okay then. But that's not the way the psalmist ends the psalm. Search me, O God. He turns it to himself. 
and says, I want to be what you want me to be. All this out there. You are all these things, subjectively, that I've just testified to. You're the creator. You're the providential caregiver. You, you know everything. You take care of us. And, and there are people out there that reject that. But I want to be someone who actually honors that, respects it, loves you, and knows you. Point one. Six points we'll go over here that come from this passage about our God cares. Number one, miracles happen, but it's important to become an expert in seeing God in the everyday things, too. You may know that Oregon has become famous in the last few years for people who have allowed their children to die because they believe in faith healing, not doctors. And I say famous because um, there's been some research on this. Since 1976, 82 children in the country have been allowed to die for that reason because they claim faith rather than faith in doctors. Now, I think that's a very childish, small God problem. If you've got a God who can only perform tricks in church rather than a God who can work in a hospital or a doctor's office with medicine, with automobiles, with, uh, with uh, medicine, with agriculture, with any of these things. A God, the providential caregiver and creator of this world, can't work in any of those ways. But if you come to church, he can do some tricks and give you a miracle. That's a tiny, blasphemous little God you've got. Maybe you bought him at Walmart or something. But you should get your money back because it's cheesy. That little God who can only work in this one narrow spectrum is not the God of this book. That's what he's saying here. Everywhere I go, if I, go to the doc if I take my kid to the doctor, God is there. If I send my kids to school, God is there. All of these things. If I go to work, God is there. Well, you would think everybody would know that. But there are teachings that fall under the rubric of Christian teaching that suggest that God is only in the miracles. I think miracles are important. But miracles, by definition, are interventions, flashes of lightning that get our attention. But if the only time you ever think about God is when God whacks you upside the head with a two-by-four... That's fine if you're a baby. But the very essence of maturity, discipleship, is learning how to see God everywhere. If you can see the hand of God in the flowers that grow from the dirt by your house, you might be closer to God than someone who can only see God when some TV preacher performs a miracle because that might be God but the goal of miracles the goal of Jesus ministry wasn't to say cut God out of your life until I come along or somebody in my name comes along and gives you some bread or the goal was to say that God is powerful enough to be everywhere and in everything number two if you can keep your head when everyone around you is losing theirs, 
then you must be a man, my son. Anybody know where that came from? Poem by Kipling. Sometimes people use it. Fathers on Father Day. That's the leading line in this poem. But I like a different ending. Then you must know God. If you can keep your head when everyone around you is losing theirs, you must know God. I think one of the greatest testimonies we can be in times like these is to not run around like chickens with our heads cut off. You come from a farmer background, you know what that means. If not, don't worry about it. Run around with our eyes bugged out and pulling our hair and saying the world's going to hell in a handbasket and, 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 and we've got to elect this guy to save us. No, that guy to save us. That's not a disciple of Jesus who acts like that. If you can keep your head because the God you know is in charge of all of this, you've got a chance of getting the respect of your non-Christian neighbors. But if you're freaking out and shrieking like everybody around you, you have no chance. Because they see you as lost as they are, as afraid as they are, panicking. saw some research uh, one time about the number one cause of uh, fatalities and automobile accidents. You would think it would be texting or uh, drinking or something like that. It isn't. It's panic. More people get killed by panicking on the highway whether they're drinking or texting or not, is a, is, a, is, a, is a secondary cause. More people die that way because somebody panics, jerks the wheel, wham, gone. Panic kills. But we don't have to panic. As genuine disciples of Jesus, knowing the God who is the superintendent of the universe, we don't have to panic. I think that's pretty cool. we got to remember it, though. Number three... If the um, omnipresence of God scares you, get your act together. Now, omnipresence, omnipresence. That's a four-cylinder word. That's one to remember. It's kind of a theological, long theological term that simply means God is everywhere present. That's what this passage, the psalm, says, why he has such hope. God is everywhere present. He can go bottom of the ocean in your house, when it's lonely and quiet, where anywhere, the loneliness you might feel, even in church or at school or out in the community, you aren't, because God is everywhere present. But if it scares you that God's everywhere present, why? Where are you going? Where are you hanging out? If you really don't like the idea of God's walking right by your side. God sees you the way he promises. That's not just a, pro a positive hope or promise. That's also a reminder that what you're doing, the privacy of your home, on your computer, on your TV, or anywhere else, God's there. And that's a good thing. But only a good thing if we allow it to give us guidance. Number four, if God is omniscient, there's another four-cylinder word, he must be a really good counselor. Just ask him. 
if he knows all things, he knows what you need and how to fix what's bugging you, what's bothering you. So ask him. This is why the psalmist ends up by saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. The best counseling question in history. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And show it to me. Test me. And bring it out of me. That's a great counseling prayer. But let God do that for you. And then, number five, if God is really omnipotent, he gets to delegate his work to anybody he likes, and he has. Omnipotent, another one of those good words. Memorize these things and impress people with them. I recommend it. Omnipotent, that means all-powerful. If God is really omnipotent, he can do these things. An illustration of this, I started out by talking a little bit about the sovereignty of God and the free will of men. Every time we fly out of Portland, I'm reminded of this. I don't know if we've ever flown out of Portland in an airplane, that is, uh, you know, on a clear day. Fly out of Portland, you go up in those dark clouds. It might be rain and snowing. You go up into that cloud, and that airplane just kind of disappears up into that cloud. And if you're in that airplane, when you come out the other side of that cloud, what does it look like? It's brilliant white. It's so white, you've got to put sunglasses on it and, on, on to, to, to look out the window. And it looks like a big pillow you could jump out of the airplane and just bounce off of it. It's the same cloud. It's a different perspective. From God's perspective, it's beautiful, white, and fluffy, and clean. From our perspective, it's dark, and raining, and dingy. That's why we've got to get God's perspective on it. And if he's all-powerful, he can figure out a way to still be in charge, to still be the top side of the cloud, while you are working your way through life on a day-to-day -day basis. Number six, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Marjorie and I have um, made several moves in our lives, started new phases of our lives, and I know everybody does this. I know everybody, this is graduation season. People are, young people are finishing college, finishing high school, and they wonder what's next. Well, here's the deal. If God is really all of these things, and if you seek his leading, his grace will keep you wherever he leads you. Marjorie and I went to a Bible college in Saskatchewan when we were in our 20s and already had a child. And first year, year we went there. In the summer, I got back driving truck, Teamster scale, and um, made lots of money to go back to college, enough to didn't need to worry about it. Now, the second year, I spent pastoring a tiny church in the middle of North Dakota, the prairies of North Dakota. And we went from there back to the Bible College in Canada. Um, and as we crossed the border, um, the border agent said, uh, what are you doing? As the usual questions go. Well, we're moving back for the, rest, for the school year. Do you have enough money to support yourself while you're there? Well, I thought about it. The answer was n not even close. 
But we still believe the Lord wanted us to do that because I'd spent the summer doing something other than Teamster truck driver scale. So I gave him this answer. The will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot keep us. <laughs> Border patrol agent. <laughs> Border agent. <laughs> I don't recall exactly the details, but uh, I do remember him kind of like standing there looking at us. And he said, okay, go. Maybe the guy was a Christian. I don't know. But the Lord did provide. We left that without a nickel of debt. And... Uh, we're able to move on, and the Lord did provide because we knew it was God leading us in this direction. So God took care of us. And I'm sure that if you've walked with God long enough, you've found this to be true, the things that scare you, frighten you, or maybe stress you can turn out to be the biggest blessings because if you know God is in it, then you know he will take care of you. Father, there are things in our lives that we sometimes give greater power and control than we give to you. We give those things up to you. We each know what it is personally that might be scaring us, might be controlling us. We give them to you knowing that we can part with those things or we can take a new direction and know you'll be with us. Thank you for teaching us that with the psalm and the rest of the scripture, but also, Lord, for proving it in our past experiences, in our confidence that when we walk with you, you walk with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't pick the theme to match what um, I'm going to tell you, but... I think most of you are aware because of some discussions we've had and things that Marjorie and I have been considering retirement. And um, in May, I turned 67. Now, I know for some of you that sounds like spring chicken. If I was a presidential candidate, it would sound like a spring chicken. First time in my whole life all the candidates have been older than I am I plan to retire and run for president <laughs> would you vote for me I'll have this many votes maybe and the other thing uh, in May um, it, uh, it was a milestone because it was 40 years ago uh, we started in ministry in 40 years and uh, sometimes feels like about enough. The Lord led us here and we love the relationship with you folks. Um, and we've been here seven and a half years. Now in discussing this with the board, uh, we have decided that my role is switching from pastor to interim pastor for the next few months. I would like to be part of the process of guiding through a pastor selection, a calling of a pastor, and um, I will be functioning the way an interim pastor does. I'll be here every week. Um, at the latest, uh, it'll be about Christmas time when we need to be gone uh, from here, but um, we want to be part of this congregation for the intervening time, and uh, just uh, we will be sending out a letter 
and we, to you, explaining the steps and inviting your participation as a congregation. Uh, that way, those who aren't here today, they can um, get it in that form. And uh, so, um, this is, uh, this is, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a joke here, but none is coming. Uh, a couple of the elders, Mike and Steve, uh, want to say some things. Mike's going to uh, give you some challenge and encouragement, and then Steve is going to con- close this, uh, close our service with prayer. Justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected. Bearing our sins, my Redeemer is he. The hands that healed nations stretched out on a tree. And took the nails for me. Living he loved me. Dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh glorious day. Oh glorious day. And one day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now he's ascended, my Lord, evermore. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Oh, glorious day, glorious day. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one, bringing my Savior Jesus is mine. Living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he just freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day, 
It may be unrestored, but you never know the miracle the Father has in store. Just watch and see, it will not be. Just watch and see, it will.